Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Boringa Ingelheim. The content was developed by the Goodfellow Unit and our expert speaker and is entirely independent. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I welcome to the podcast Professor Rob Doherty to discuss heart failure and update. Rob holds the Heart Foundation Chair of Heart Health at the University of Auckland where he runs a program of research related to improving and understanding the causes, prevention and treatment of heart disease in New Zealand. He is a cardiologist at Green Lane Cardiovascular Service at Auckland City Hospital and the Heart Group. His current research interests include the genetic and environmental causes of premature coronary disease and cardiovascular risk management outcomes and innovative therapies for patients with heart failure, atrial fibrillation and coronary heart disease. Kia ora, Rob, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, kia ora, Louise. So thank you for joining me today, Rob. We're going to be discussing heart failure in the New Zealand context. So let's just start with a case. Sammy is a 63-year-old Maori man with heart failure, which was diagnosed approximately 15 months ago. His current medications include a beta blocker, spironolactone, fruzamide, aspirin, and an ACE inhibitor. He is well, but over the last little bit, he's noticed that his exercise tolerance has declined. He is unsure if this is due to lack of fitness, but he is unable to exercise as vigorously and feels fatigued after a light gardening session. His echo at this point hasn't been repeated as access has been difficult over the last little bit. His ejection fraction on his initial echo approximately 15 months ago was 34%. Rob, in this space, terminology's changed since we last had you on the podcast, and sometimes it can be a bit confusing. So I wonder if we can start with some definitions, please. So heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, what exactly is meant by that? Yeah, absolutely. And it has changed a little bit. The principles, I think, still are the same. So the principles are that a person can develop heart failure, uh, the clinical syndrome of heart failure, across any level of ejection fraction. That's the first thing to be aware of. So the ejection fraction itself does not diagnose heart failure. The heart failure is the clinical syndrome. And then the ejection fraction is telling us something about the heart pump function in relation to that clinical presentation. Just as a reminder, the normal left ventricular ejection fraction is over about 50 to 55%. It's commonly confusing for patients because it's a percentage. And so like many people, if you don't get 100% in your exam, then you feel like you're not doing so good. But that's not the case for ejection fraction. The ejection fraction is not 100% because the heart does not empty completely. So the normal ejection fraction is over 50 to 55%. And then some level of reduced or impaired ejection fraction is below that level. So for Sammy here, his ejection fraction is 34%. So that's well below the lower uh, limit of normal. And so he will be defined as an ejection fraction phenotype as having HEF-REF, so heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Now, that sort of terminology is as opposed to the person who has heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which by definition these days is usually an ejection fraction of above 50%. That is quite common. So depending on the clinical context of where you're seeing people with heart failure, that could be anywhere up to 40, 45% of all patients with heart failure will actually have a preserved ejection fraction when they present. 
So SAMI here has reduced ejection fraction. There is a subcategory of mildly reduced, which is that sort of 40 to 50%. That may be getting a little bit sort of pedantic about the ejection fraction, but the key principle, number one, heart failure can be across that whole range and reduced ejection fraction compared to preserved ejection fraction. And you don't know that necessarily looking at the patient in front of you. So clinically, they may present with the same symptoms and signs, but you don't know until they've had imaging. Great. And why is it important to consider ejection fraction? Yep, it's very important. It's important for a number of reasons. And maybe I'll start with treatment approaches first. Over 40 years, I guess we're very fortunate in a heart failure context to have a very, very strong evidence base for therapeutic interventions across the board. Now, the vast majority of that benefit from therapeutic interventions is for those people with an ejection fraction below about 40%, so the HEF-REF cohort. So understanding that that is the context of where SAMI is, automatically now we should be thinking about what is the range of therapies that we've got for this individual person. The heart failure with preserved ejection fraction now does have some therapies, and we may get onto that in a minute. But the key thing has been from a therapeutic direction, sort of decision-making process. Where are we heading? You've diagnosed the clinical syndrome clinically and with imaging now. And then where are you heading next from a therapeutics point of view? The ejection fraction has a number of other different roles. It's certainly prognostic, so it has meaning. So someone whose ejection fraction is 15%, you know, extremely severely impaired left ventricular systolic function is going to be very meaningful from a a short to medium term outcome compared to the person perhaps with a better um, systolic function. So prognosis-wise, it's important, but I guess often at this sort of stage in management, we're really thinking, well, what are we going to do different? What are we going to do next? And the implications are strong once you understand it's HEF-REF. Okay, thank you. Before we move on to treatment, is there anything more we want to know from Sammy? And I suppose thinking about that, do we need to classify his heart failure? Yes, absolutely. The case presented there, I think, is, is a common sort of situation. I think the several things just on the information provided so far that I would say is that sort of response from people where they're not sure that it's maybe just a lack of fitness that's contributing to the symptoms. I, I think that's a really, really common human nature response. If something happens acutely, we feel awful and we seek attention. But often in the heart failure context, things can happen relatively slowly, progressively over weeks or months. And so people adapt and then kind of blame themselves, I'm not so fit or I haven't been doing as much. Um, So when you're hearing that, that, if you know the person's got heart failure and many other conditions, but certainly if you know they've got heart failure, I'm kind of worried at that point. I think this is something going wrong for this patient. I don't know what it is at that point, but it's a kind of red flag to say, this patient's not doing so well. So just that as a signal is really important. It is important to classify, and and I suppose there are a number of different classifications you can use. We've talked about the ejection fraction kind of classification, but in broad terms, is this, does Sammy have an ischemic cardiomyopathy, i.e. driven mainly by underlying coronary artery disease? Or this, is this a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy? And again, you don't necessarily know at the beginning until some further investigations have been done, but those sort of classifications are important. That's about now 
extending the understanding of Sammy's heart failure context. Remember, heart failure is that clinical syndrome of which there is an underlying cause, i.e. there is some form of underlying cardiac or cardiovascular disease that is causing this problem. And I think sometimes we have a little bit of tendency to forget that. We say, oh, this is heart failure. Whereas actually, you could pause and say, well, actually, why has this patient got heart failure? So that sort of classification is important. I will add here as well to say, well, what else do we want to know? And what else is important to consider? Um, rhythm. Keep always in mind cardiac rhythm. So even if Sammy was in sinus rhythm, when he presented to you originally 15 months ago, atrial fibrillation is very, very common, or atrial arrhythmias in general, very common anyway, but especially in the heart failure context. And so these people sometimes will evolve atrial fibrillation. They will go into atrial fibrillation. They won't recognize that's what's happened, but this sort of functional decline can occur over a period of weeks or months. So think about rhythm. And I think that's a really important part of that effectively bedside clinical assessment has something else changed that you can obviously see. There's then the wealth of other information that you're all very good at getting from the patient about their other general life context, but also other comorbidities. So what else has gone wrong recently? Obviously, in the last few years, we've had a lot of people coming presenting with exacerbations of heart failure, either in the post-COVID weeks or months or post-vaccination. And patients kind of like to blame the COVID. <laughs> and certainly it may have a role in triggering exacerbations. Certainly infections can. So, you know, thinking about if things have got worse, why has it got worse? Fantastic point. Thank you. So we think we're going to move on and examine Sammy now. You've mentioned rhythm. What other things can we examine at the bedside? Yep. So the pulse check, as you've said, from a rhythm point of view, whether you have access to an ECG or not, or some smartphone device or whatever else you, you have available to you at the bedside, but just do the pulse check because obviously it may not pick up every AF case, but certainly just the clinical assessment there is really important. You then really, I think if you focus on the heart failure context, you're really looking particularly for signs of fluid overload. So it's that clinical assessment for fluid overload you're looking and talking to the patient about weight change. Now, in some patients, that's extremely helpful from a fluid balance point of view. And part of their self-management can be to weigh themselves regularly, looking for that change in weight. And then clinically, have they got clinical signs of fluid volume overload? Clearly, you know, a change in their peripheral edema or development of peripheral edema, the good old JVP that everyone hates to try to look at. Um, but remember, do look at it because, you know, the subtle ones, you know, yeah, sure, they, they can be difficult and body habitus can make that assessment difficult. But for some of these people, they may present quite late with quite marked volume overload. And literally, you can see the JVP banging away on the side of their neck when they're sitting up in a chair talking to you, not even on a, on a couch. So have a look. It's not necessarily that easy and practical, but don't forget the JVP. and. Two other parts, I think, are for some people, their congestion is very central in their abdomen and it's liver congestion. So it's the symptoms of that. It's loss of appetite, but not being able to tolerate eating a big meal. So just being off their food. But, but even when they try to have a meal, they just can't eat a big meal. They feel full. They feel really tight in the tummy. And 
So that may be obviously a symptom if you ask, if you're pushing them a little bit. And then there's the symptom, which I think we've recognized, it's been around forever, but I think someone's obviously named it, but is bendopnea. So we're used to orthopnea, so that's breathlessness lying down flat. But bendopnea is where people develop breathlessness when they are bending over. So the, the usual time would be you know, when they're bending over to do their shoelaces up or put their shoes on or put their socks on or something like that. And that's a change in their symptom and they just can't do it. And then they straighten up again and they're really breathless. And that's because they're congested in that sort of central abdominal region. And then that fluid shift when they're bending causes those symptoms. Ascites. So it may not be easy to examine a person for ascites, but patients might say to you, look, I, I can't do my belt up now on the same notch on the belt. So it's simple translation things, which in an ideal world and an examination taken a while to do might not be so easy and practical, but listen to the other symptoms that people are, you know, being aware of what can happen for a person and looking for those kind of clues along the way, you know, for that congestion. I've focused there mostly on sort of what we describe as right-sided congestion, but obviously it can be pulmonary congestion as well with crackles in the lungs, but crackles are non-specific. Great. Thanks, Rob. We're considering ordering some tests now. What should we consider thinking blood work initially? Yep. So you need a, a range of blood work and a range is relevant. So Sammy has an, what we think is heading towards an exacerbation of his heart failure. That's how we're, we're sort of discussing this really. So a number of things are relevant. Renal function, absolutely. So we need that to understand his renal function where he is at the moment, but also in relation to therapeutic interventions, um, depending on the level of his renal dysfunction. Electrolytes, so he's on a diuretic. So we do need to be aware of his sodium and potassium levels if, if he's going to need escalation of diuretic therapy. He needs a blood count. So clearly there can then be looking, you know, part of your basic blood work will help to understand if there is some other coexisting problem that perhaps has triggered the heart failure. So person who's having a, a subclinical sort of quiet GI bleed has been going on, just losing a bit of blood for months, for example, and they've progressively become anemic. Absolutely, anemia can trigger an exacerbation of heart failure. And along with the blood count, I would recommend doing iron studies on everybody at that point. And we can talk about iron later if you'd like to. And then I guess everyone knows the value of NT pro BMP. Now, Sammy has established heart failure. So you have to think about what you're trying to use the NT pro BMP level for at that point. But you're looking here at someone who's got a change in symptoms. So the question there is, is this an exacerbation of heart failure or not? So you might see, so let's say if Sammy had coexisting airways disease, came to see you breathless over the winter months, is this an exacerbation of respiratory problems or an exacerbation of heart failure or both? So an NT-proBMP there can be very helpful. If your NT-proBMP level was very low, then you can effectively exclude an exacerbation of heart failure causing his symptoms at that point. Liver bloods, as I've mentioned about liver congestion. Now, obviously, there's a range of other things you may need to do in blood work-wise, depending on comorbidities or, or other clinical contexts. But there are a number of things there that really I think we need to see lined up at that stage to have confidence moving forward safely for this patient. Great, thank you. So wondering about further investigations, 
we know that he's had an echo historically at 15 months ago, but do we need to repeat the echo at this point in order to be able to optimize his medical management? The answer is no, we don't. And that's an important no. We know that he has heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Now, that was 15 months ago. That doesn't mean his EF is the same now. It could be better or it could be worse. But you've got a working basis from where he's come from in recent months. And so access to investigations for Sammy should not prevent you from getting on and treating this patient. So yes, in the ideal world, obviously, everybody would have a repeat imaging at the right time for everything. We don't live in that world right now, and we're not likely to for a while. So, so no, absolutely, we're going to get on and do something different for this patient. All right. So moving on, Rob, what are we going to do for him? What medications should we alter or add in or yep. take away? I think from a medication point of view, the first thing to be aware of, and I, and I think everybody is aware of this, I'm sure listening to this, is that these medications for people with heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction change outcomes. So heart failure is a bad diagnosis. It's a bad thing to have. None of us want it. But if you've got it, there are things that can be done. And these classes of medications, which we'll go into a little bit more, absolutely change outcome. This is very different to decades ago. And it's very important that we enable people to receive the right medications because they do change outcome. Now, Sammy is already on several of those classes of medications. Um, he's heading in the right direction. So the disease-modifying medications, which is how we need to consider these medications, he's on a beta blocker, he's on an ACE inhibitor, and he's on spironolactone. So he's on three of what might now be called the pillars of the disease-modifying classes of medications. And I think everyone's familiar with those. So the first thing to think about in relation to those alone is dose. The dosages are important, and sometimes patients can get a little bit stuck on quite low dosages. So dose is relevant, um, relevant to be considering. He may well need more fruzamide at that point. If in your assessment, and with your blood tests, you consider that he is volume overloaded, then he needs increase of his diuretic. Well worth pausing, as you all know, in relation to diuretic use, because often people after many months will naturally either stop their diuretic because of the inconvenience of the diuresis, or they'll have intermittent use. So, you know, what's Sammy doing in his life? Does he go out in the mornings is he working? Is he busy in his life? And does he just not take it during the day in the week because he's out too much? As many, many people do, they just can't function because they're needing to find a bathroom all the time. So have that conversation first before you change the dose of the furosemide, because quite often you'll find that going back into that story, it tells you quite a bit more. Generally, though, if he's been taking his furosemide regularly, you generally need to double the dose. So if he's on 80 milligrams of fruzamide once a day, there is usually not too much benefit of just going and adding an extra fruzamide. So if he is volume overloaded, let's say he's five kilos over his target weight, he's obvious peripheral edema and volume overload when you examine him, then you really need to double the fruzamide. He needs to diurese. Now, that may only be for a few days, may only be four or five days to get that diuresis going. 
but you kind of need to take the principle to double the furosemide dose. Generally, don't split the dose. And that's a very common kind of temptation is to say, right, you're already taking 80 in the morning, take another 40 at lunchtime. It doesn't really work. First of all, it's highly inconvenient for Sammy <clears throat> having to do that. But secondly, the afternoon in an ambulant patient at home, the afternoon furosemide generally won't result in much diuresis, which is what you want. And so chat to your patients about this. They'll tell you all about it. And they'll tell you, first of all, it's a pain in the neck, but it's not so much of a pain in the neck as the morning furosemide, the morning one that works. So you're thinking about the diuretic dose, you're thinking about those three classes of medication that he's on. But then I would say this is time to escalate his therapy. And, and he has HEF-REF. He's had it for some months now. He's kind of losing an opportunity here. So you want to think that we're 15 months down the line. We're losing an opportunity for Sammy. And that opportunity is real. And so the first thing, well, it, you can do things either way, but we've got choices of medications here. And the ACE inhibitor could be switched for the Entresto, the Secubitrol Valsartan combination. And that is very, very effective. If we're going to do that, we've talked about that previously in a podcast, but just reminding our listeners, we do have to follow a particular protocol with that. So can we just talk about that for a moment? Yep. So the switch is usually a once daily medication to a twice daily medication. So that's important. You've got two agents in Entresto, which is the Valsartan plus then the secubitral part, and the blood pressure lowering is quite a bit more. So just be aware of that. So you've got to think about blood pressure, but when you do make the switch, the patient needs to be 72 hours off their ACE inhibitor. Now, a simple practical way, I mean, if there's no urgency to it, then one way to do that is that they take their last ACE inhibitor dose on a Friday morning, and Monday morning they start the Entresto just hanging it around a weekend, you know, how we think of weekends and weekdays and sometimes makes it a little bit easier for a patient to think about it that way. But that interruption of that gap's really important. Whereas if they were receiving losartan or candesartan, so an angiotensin receptor blocker, you can do the switch from one day to the next. Fantastic. Rob, if Sammy had diabetes, would that change your management at all? Yes, it would. It would change it in a number of ways. So coexisting diabetes with heart failure, that diabetes should ideally be managed as well as possible, as I'm sure you'd be doing anyway. But then it introduces the SGLT2 inhibitors. The funded one is empagliflozin that you're all familiar with, I think. So we can discuss a little bit, of, but we're stuck in a slightly difficult position in New Zealand at the moment. So you're talking about Sammy, if he has diabetes, from an empagliflozin point of view, it means the special authority can be provided, which means he'll get funded medication. So that's 10 milligrams once a day. If you're using it for the heart failure context, you don't need to increase the dose further. I know you will sometimes for diabetes management, but it's 10 milligrams once a day of empagliflozin in that context, and that would be funded. So he would be eligible if he had diabetes with an HbA1c of 53 or more, then he would be eligible for funded empagliflozin right now. And if he didn't have diabetes, uh, he wouldn't meet criteria for special authority, but he has the option to self-fund. What would be your preferred agent? Would you be going for Entresto or the SGLT2? 
or both? Yeah, both. So <laughs> certainly it clearly needs to be a conversation about the funding component, and that may not be an easy, easy answer. No reason not to get on with the interest though. So absolutely, we should get on with that. That is funded for this patient and we should get on with it. The question then is, is Sammy able and prepared to self-fund the benefit in people with heart failure, and that's Sammy, is regardless of their diabetes status. So empagliflozin categorically has the same clinical benefit whether you have diabetes or not if you have heart failure. So our current special authority criteria is disadvantaging people, and that disadvantage is really important disadvantage. So, Rob, I wonder if we can just talk about that for a moment. So that SGLT2 use in heart failure with people without diabetes, that may be a little bit new to some of our listeners. So what actually is the evidence for its use and what improvement and advantages are there in using this class of medication? And this is relatively new. It's evolved very quickly. It's, it's quite an amazing story, really, in both the story, but also the speed of evolution mm-hmm. of evidence. And I think it, it's a testament to the expectation about evidence-based medicine now is high, is we expect you know, robust evidence and we expect it quickly. And I think that's what's been delivered here hopefully not to bore people, but a very, very quick summary through that is that these drugs were originally designed supposedly for people with diabetes. They increase glucose excretion through the kidney, and the principle was to improve glycemic control. The reason we found out about it, we as in the collective we, is that the FDA mandated the pharmaceutical companies getting data on safety from a cardiovascular point of view. And in fact, the signal became very evident in diabetes trials of benefit in reducing heart failure hospitalizations. So very rapidly, now four large-scale randomized trials have been done, two for people with HEF-REF and two for the people with basically HEF-PEF effectively. So the whole range of ejection fraction phenotype in heart failure has been covered with and without diabetes. And so that's really come to completion just this year of the collective four trials, all showing consistent benefit. So people who take empagliflozin or dapagliflozin have clinical benefit with their heart failure status. Then that benefit is in reducing heart failure readmissions. And that's any readmission for a person with heart failure is not a great thing to happen, as well as improving mortality. So that combined benefit is a very real clinical benefit. That benefit is quite quick. This isn't about modifying a disease over two years and waiting for something to get better. The benefit in those trials is happening within weeks. So the longer we delay in using either of them, but let just I'm going to say empagliflozin to save saying both of them, but the longer we delay in using those agents, again, we are disadvantaging patients. So that's the benefit, and it is a very robust data set. Now, even the heart failure guidelines, the European guidelines, aren't even quite up to this because literally it's only the the recent months that that's all been completed. So, I mean, there'll be revisions, et cetera, but the data is secure. It's not going to change now. 
So from an opportunistic point of view, if we have someone with heart failure, regardless of ejection fraction in our office, we should be having these discussions yep. with them. Absolutely. And in a way, empagliflozin, we're probably going to use more of that in New Zealand because people as prescribers will be more familiar because of the special authority niche for it already. But either is okay. And it does not have marked blood pressure change. So that's quite helpful is, an, is one of those therapeutic disease modifying classes now is not a blood pressure lowering drug, unlike all the others. And we often get concerned and worried that we're lowering blood pressure too much and people will fall over. So you don't get that with empagliflozin. So it can be started relatively early and you can start it at the same time that you're changing other therapies. You don't have to do everything in sequence. You can certainly add empagliflozin kind of any time you like. Okay, so we could, in the same breath or appointment, we could be taking him off his ACE inhibitor, putting him on a Tristo and adding in the SGLT2 inhibitor. Great. Yeah, I think that's something that we are always cautious to do slowly and stepwise so that we can, we know of adverse effects, but if the safety data is there, we can move ahead feeling reassured. Exactly. The only one that I would be just slightly more cautious with is if you're starting in Tresto immediately in someone who is relatively fragile, i.e. their kidneys are not fantastic, their blood pressure is on the lower side, you know, you've effectively then done three agents change. You're going to change dose of them then Tresto. And then if the kidney function goes off, what are you going to do? Which one's the culprit? So that probably is maybe the one time where you might go in a sequence, but otherwise you can you can get it going. And Rob, as far as monitoring with the new medications, what do we need to do there? Yep. As we all know, I think you know one of the patient-related outcomes is urinary tract infections with the SGLT2 inhibitors. So it's clearly counseling the patient about that and you know getting those reported back to you if that is happening so that can be dealt with. And clearly there will be you know a small number of people if it's recurrent UTIs that would need to stop that drug, but that concern should not be preventing us using it with appropriate counseling and support. There is a change in renal function, and so there is a rise in creatinine that occurs as you start, say, an SGLT2 inhibitor, and that can be up to a 30% increase. And sometimes that can seem alarming. Uh, So it's just, again, being aware, yep, that can happen, getting some renal function done, putting it in the context of the timing of the drug change that you've done, and within that you know, 30% sort of range is usually weathering that out and it will usually settle back down again. Now, again, there's going to be someone who, where, where that doesn't happen. It's going to cause worsening renal function and that's what we're looking out for. That's why we're monitoring just like, and we're all familiar with doing that with ACE inhibitors and fruitamide and spironolactone. So really there's nothing different there. It is just a process to ensure that the monitoring is done. With Sammy now, we've doubled his fruzmide to deal with his fluid overload. We've changed his ACE inhibitor to Entristo and we've added in our SGLT2 inhibitor. Is there anything else that we should consider for him in this moment? Yes, there is. And not so much immediately. But so what you've done effectively is you've optimized his disease modifying. So, so you've got him out of the corner he's in, which is an exacerbation of heart failure. You've optimized his disease-modifying medications, which is going to give Sammy that optimal chance for improvement and prevention of further worsening. 
And then now he needs he needs another look. So he does need another echo. Now, he doesn't need that tomorrow and he doesn't need it by Monday, but he needs another echo at this sort of time because you kind of now need to know where you're going. Has Sammy you know, got a progressive decline in his heart function? Is his ejection fraction now 20%? And do we need to do something different? And as you know, there are other therapeutic interventions with heart failure device therapies, which is either an implantable defibrillator or and or biventricular pacemakers for people who have left bundle branch block on their ECG. So he has had an exacerbation of heart failure and we have to we have to remember that that's not a good context. I.e. his disease process is progressing such that he's worsened. And so we have to think, right, what's our opportunity to do something different at this point in his life for his protection in the future? Done that with the medications. So now we need to consider what else we can do. And most of the time for Sammy, that would mean coming back into secondary care services, having an echocardiogram, um, he's getting angina, having a coronary angiogram, you know, whatever else is necessary then in his individual context to ensure that his heart failure situation has been optimized as best we possibly can for his long-term future. We touched on atrial fibrillation at the beginning, but again, I would just put that reminder in again, you know, if this is atrial fibrillation that's triggered this, what are we going to do about his atrial fibrillation? Is it going to be a rate control strategy? He should be anticoagulated, not be on an anticoagulant. So he's only 63, but he's got clinical heart failure. And so what are we going to do about his atrial fibrillation? Is he adequately rate controlled? Does he need a cardioversion? What are all those options that are available for the management of the other context as well as a defibrillator? Rob, is there anything else that we should consider with Sammy? Is there any other options for him? So in a way, the sort of final option for people with clinical heart failure is the consideration of, of heart transplantation. Now, in New Zealand, there are maybe 14 to 16 heart transplants done on average each year. Uh, that's across the whole country. We clearly can't, and none of us usually can make a call on whether the individual person is eligible for a transplant or even would want one, but we should keep an open mind about that. For those people with that trajectory that's going down, where their disease process is progressing, uh, they're becoming progressively uh, more limited and unwell. And there really is a, you know, it's not, the transplant context is not just until the person can't walk anymore. People do receive a heart transplant in their 60s, including in New Zealand. Um, now, as everyone will know, there's a very carefully done assessment process, including the educational component for the patient and their whanau as to whether they wish to go ahead with that. But all I'd say is, Let's none of us judge that. Let's actually be aware that that is a resource. It is available in this country. And so ask the question and can always find someone who can discuss someone and say, is this appropriate to be heading in the thought process down that, down that sort of line? Thank you for that, Rob. And to conclude our podcast today, some take-home messages for our listeners, please. Thank you, Louise. Um, several things I think that we've covered today. Heart failure is modifiable. So please remember that. It's an awful condition for people to have. Quality of life can be severely affected. 
but the therapeutic interventions can make a huge difference over the years ahead for individuals. It doesn't always go well, but there is potential. So that's the first thing. Remember that these medication classes mean a lot. It's not just about one class or one medication. It does mean polypharmacy. But if ever you're going to use polypharmacy, I'd say it's in the heart failure context. So kind of don't be afraid of the polypharmacy. It's challenging. There's all the interactions and adherence, et cetera. There's an awful lot to help a person to manage there. But don't be afraid of those pillars of therapy. They're what make the difference. And it's dose. Let's not accept very low doses of medications unless we have to. The newer therapies we've covered, Louise, and I think they're they are new and hopefully our funding arrangements in New Zealand will change soon. They really need to because of the benefit. And then my final comment is to say, don't forget the AF, the atrial fibrillation. Just feel the pulse. Thank you so much, Rob, for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please log them and you'll find a list of resources on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening.